Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Alan Fru, making his triumphant return to this podcast. Alan is, of course, the frontman for Glass Tiger, whose 1986 debut album, The Thin Red Line, won the judo for Album of the Year, anchored by Single of the Year, Don't Forget Me When I'm Gone. Currently, Alan is doing deep knee bends and other calisthenics as he prepares for his 80s and 90s Rewind live show at the Opera House on Saturday, February 17th. So let's catch up with Newmarket's favorite son. Welcome back to Toronto Legends, Alan. Thank you for once again joining me. Where are you and how are you? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. And I am in Toronto and I'm doing I'm doing well. As you know, I had major health issue. Uh, that I had to recover from, and uh, as far as that goes, I'm probably as healthy as I could possibly be after uh, going through such a, a rough time. But I'm I'm good. That's excellent to hear. Now, did you mm. just get back from a visit to Italy? Yeah, my daughter actually lives in London, uh, so we went over for the uh, the holiday break uh, to see her. And then popped over to Italy and then uh, scooted back here. And now everything is like, let's get ready for this February 17th uh, show. It's it's going to be a good one. Excellent. Now, I imagine that other Canadian tourists would recognize your very unique combination of voice and face. Did you get recognized, Alan, while overseas? <laughs> no, I can, I can pretty much move around uh, with complete anonymity. I mean... Very, very occasionally. Uh, I was in Switzerland one time, not that long ago, and a guy came up and said, Glass Tiger, and it was because there was a bunch of Canadians sitting in the corner. Uh, other than that, no, complete anonymity. <laughs> now, during Glass Tiger's heyday in the 80s and 90s, did you play Italy or Europe? Oh, we played all over Europe. We didn't do a lot in Italy. We did quite a few television shows in Italy, in Milano and Rome, but we never, I don't think we ever performed. We were with Tina Turner and I don't i don't think she did Rome, but we did, you know, we've done St- Sweden and Denmark and Finland and Germany and Belgium and Spain and, you know, I just don't think Italy was on the list. I can't remember. <laughs> you'll, you'll have to add it on next time you're there. Now, I have to ask whether playing overseas or in North America. Do you recall any tours where you remember thinking to yourself, I can't believe we're touring with XYZ? Oh, absolutely. I mean, our very first major tour, I was like, I can't believe we're touring with Steve Perry and Journey. Followed up by, I can't believe we're touring with Tina Turner. So, I mean, yeah, it's pretty mind-blowing for a beginning, you know. Now, before we talk about your 80s and 90s Rewind show coming up Saturday, February 17th at the Opera House, what does an Alan Frew solo show imply, if anything, about the current status of Glass Tiger? 
Oh, uh, there's absolutely nothing negatively or uh, there's nothing detrimental about it at all. I'm a true vocalist and pure singer, and the lads know that whenever Glass Tiger is taking some kind of break or off or whatever, I still enjoy very much performing. So this gives me an opportunity to uh, just stretch out a little bit. And uh, it reminds me of the days when I used to play the bars and we were a cover band. And so Glass Tiger encourages me fully. Hey, dude, if you want to go out and do that, just don't do a Glass Tiger show. And, uh, and I agree with that. So I come out and I've got this wonderful set list of 80s and 90s hits. And it just becomes one big party. That's it. It's just a bash. Well, I am going to dive into it, but I, you can't draw me away from Glass Tiger that quickly. Is there any new material coming from Glass Tiger? Well, I, I got quoted recently as saying we're the most industrious, laziest band in the planet. And what I mean by that is we are a truly, we're a hardworking, industrious band. We play as much as we can, but it's always been difficult getting us into the studio. And one of the great examples of that, Andrew, is the fact that we won five Junos. We were nominated 11 times. We get Canadian Classic Awards. We had hit singles. I think, you know, 15 singles, and some of them were number one hits, all from three albums. So one can only imagine what we would have been like if we'd done four or, or, or six. But it's really tricky getting us into the studio. That being said, with this new, still call it a fairly new environment of you know, social media, we realize our place. Our place is nostalgia. Nobody's going to hear Glass Tiger in top 20 or top 40 radio anymore, and we understand that. So we have a lot of material that we could easily start releasing sort of individual singles if we wanted to. And I think we'll do that. I think we've got plenty of stuff to 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 bring out. I I have some great stuff on my own actually sitting on the shelf. So it should just uh, take a little bit of impetus and 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 get it out there. Well, I think that sounds great. You got my vote, Alan, that we should get that stuff off the shelf. Now, in 1985, Glass Tiger changed from its original name, Tokyo, and at that time was made up of you, Alan, on vocals, Al Connolly on guitar, Sam Reed on keyboards. Wayne Parker on bass, and Michael Hansen on drums. Who makes up Glass Tiger today? How many of the original members are still involved? Well, we like to think of it that there's still the four of us, but Wayne, Wayne has taken a hiatus because he's got this fabulous company that Wayne's always been into the stars, uh, and I mean the real stars, the ones that we look up uh, and see night after night. And so he's got this pod company, this uh, home observatory company that he's deep in, deeply involved with. So he's, he did take a hiatus for a few years. But I mean, recently when we got inducted into the Walk of Fame, Wayne was by our side. So there's four of us, but right now it, it's, it's mainly focused on Sam and Al and myself while Wayne does what he needs to do. And Alan, do you keep in touch with drummer Mike Hansen? And if so, what is he up to? I do stay in touch with Michael. Uh, we have worked actually 
on two or three things in the past few years. Michael's still very much uh, involved in the music industry. He he works a lot with young artists who come to him for guidance and songwriting. And he recently put some of his own material out. So he and I stay in touch. And um, if there was a reason for us to uh, get in a studio together, I would have no problem doing that. And that brings us to your 80s and 90s Rewind Live concert coming up. Now, some 80s pop superstars run away from the 80s, and some embrace the success from that decade. Alan, you clearly are in that latter camp. Yeah. One of the most interesting things I found over the last 10 10 years or so was that from the stage in front of a glass tiger audience, whether it was a small club in Montreal where there's only 1,000 people, or whether it was a festival with 5,000, or whether it was a multi-festival where we were part of 25,000, I would always ask them, how many of you have seen Glass Tiger before? I'd ask them to raise their hands. And I would say maybe, maybe if you're lucky, a third of them would put their hands up. So then of that third, I would say, those of you who raised your hands, how many saw us in 1986? Wow just a fraction. So it dawned on me that there were new generations out there attaching themselves to the love of 80s music. And so it became a just a, a little quest of mine thinking, I'd like to explore this a little more. So I went to Nashville at one point about eight years ago, and I recorded a CD called 80s, 90s Rewind where all the music was from 1890 into the 90s. And I had a ton of fun doing it. Looking back on it, it's a little tame. Uh, There's two or three things I think I really nailed well. A couple of things I think are a little tame. But it was a test. It was a litmus test. So I put this killer band together, and we really matured it. If I do volume two, then uh, I think you'd really see that I've upped I've upped my game, but it, it was very interesting how many people would get in touch with me, and yes, they would say, I discovered Glass Tiger because of my parents. <laughs> I always say, I know when I'll quit, when one of these young ones comes up and says, Alan, my granny thinks you're hot, right? I think you know that. I, I've, I've said that before, but I love the idea. Like, my daughter's 19 and she listens to classic rock and classic pop all the time. And there has to be a reason for that. So I love the idea of a new generation or two uh, coming out and attaching themselves to this wonderful, these two wonderful eras. And if I can be a conduit for that, I'd have a blast myself singing The Cult and The Cure and R.E.M. and Oasis and Pearl Jam. Who wouldn't want to do that? So that's, that's how it came about. Makes total sense. Nostalgia plus these new generations discovering the 80s and the 90s. You've alluded to some of the artists, Alan, but who will you be covering at your show? And, and how did you decide what hits from the 80s and 90s to include? Well, deciding what is always difficult because there is so much to choose from. So I kind of go down the route I, I kind of think, what do I love? Because I have to be happy. What do I love? And then 
what do I think I can really present extremely well? Because I like to make it as much like the original as possible. I, I don't want to take people on this jazzy fusion journey of something that they've adored for almost 40 years. So musically and sonically, I want it to be as close to the original as possible. And then I want my voice to, I want it to suit my voice. So I look at that. And then last but not least, I want it to be a smash. You know, I don't want it to be something a little obscure that I thought was cool that, you know, some other people might not. So hence, I got like Beds of Burning by Midnight Oil. A new Sensation by In Excess, Simply the Best by Tina Turner, Just Like Heaven by The Cures, She Sells Sanctuary by The Cult. So I think, yeah, as, as I watch you nod your head, as I can see on this video, that's exactly what I'm looking for when I try and select the songs that I select. I love it. All the hits. Now, Alan, is this a one-off or the start of a wonderful cross-Canada? Alan Frew sings the 80s and 90s Rewind Tour. Well, it's a little bit little bit of both because is it a one-off? It could be because it's a real litmus test. People higher up the the, uh, the ladder, meaning agents and, and uh, managers and, and uh, promoters are wondering, can I do it? All they care about is, can you sell tickets? Can you, can you do that? I would love to do this. Uh, I would love nothing more than to make this a viable tour. I've done it corporately. It's a corporate dream. You know, you get these big corporations and somebody says, hey, I hear you've got this 80s, 90s thing. I could take this on one of those classic cruises and go out into the Caribbean and, and be on a, on a ship. But I would love to take it across Canada and maybe even cross the border and do some stuff in the States. But as you know, that's a difficult proposition. You know, how do you do it? How do you fly a band? How do you take a tour bus out if, if, it's, if there's not enough people that want it? So this show will be what it is. It'll be a killer evening. It'll be a litmus test. And we'll see what, what comes after that. I think we've already resolved it today, Alan. The boat cruise sounds the way to go. Load everything on and you don't have to worry. You get the suntan as well. Yeah, that'd be fabulous. At the Opera House, February 17th, will you be selling any 80s and 90s merch or vintage Glass Tiger t-shirts? Huh. Well, I've definitely, I've got some 80s, 90s merch that I'll be bringing with me. Yeah, t-shirts and uh, uh, some hats and and. I've got a new calendar that I put out, and even although, even although it'll be February, I'll bring that with me, and people can grab onto that if they want. And there's a couple of real cool glass tiger t-shirts that I should probably bring with me as well. Why not? <laughs> and here's the million-dollar question: How is Alan Frew's voice holding up at the very youthful age of 67? Is your voice still in tip-top shape? Well, that's the only reason. I'm still doing what I'm doing. My voice is at the top of its game. And um, even when I suffered my stroke, it was untouched. My vocal cords were untouched, uh, which was amazing. So if anything, it probably added even more passion to my voice when I fought my way back 
So my voice is at the top of his game. I sing all of the Glass Tiger stuff in the original keys, and I sing all of this 80s stuff in their original keys. So uh, that should answer your question. I love it. It's great. Now, Alan, you have access to a roster of the absolutely best talent out there. So maybe you want to please give a shout out to the musicians that will be backing you up live on February 17th. Well, I've decided to have fun with this uh, because I have like eight musicians that I work with and usually it's different combinations. And when you're trying to put a band together with working musicians who are doing other things, it's always difficult. You know, you'll you'll pick a day for rehearsal. Oh, and they're all available except two. Uh, you know, that goes up. And in this particular case, I said February 17th, and every single one said, I'm available. So I'm going to bring them all. So I'll have three guitar players. I'll have two keyboard players, and my bass player, uh, my drummer, and my backup singer. So I have some of the, the country's finest uh, Chris McNeil on drums, who drums for Glass Tiger and for for me. Tommy Lewis on bass. Tommy's worked with Tom Cochran and Burton Cummins, uh, Glass Tiger. I have Carmela Long on backup vocals. Carmela's been a, a Toronto vocalist for as long as I can remember. She's worked with great artists, uh, including uh, uh, Burton Cummins. Uh, one of her great claims to fame was she worked with Alice Cooper. And then I've got three of the greatest guitar players, Bob McAlpine, Sean Kelly, who's uh, uh, who works with Nelly Furtado, and uh, Russell Gray. And then on keyboards, I have uh, Peter Kedar, who goes out there with Burton Cummins. He was out with the Tenors recently. And Matt Giffen, who's one of the top keyboard players in, in, in the country. Now, one of your three guitarists, Sean Kelly, has been a guest on this podcast. And, well, he was actually formally trained as a classical guitarist. Yes. And in addition, as you know, to playing with Nelly Furtado, he's played with Helix and yeah. the metal queen herself, Lee Ayers. So what I have to tell you, when I did not foresee Sean Kelly playing guitar for Alan Cruz's hits of the 80s and 90s. Yeah, when, when Lee got inducted into the Walk of Fame... Sean was with her. Uh, he is part of her band. Uh, I love Sean uh, dearly. And he epitomizes the, the, the true rock star. There's a great story, actually. Uh, Russell Gray, who you may not know, Russell's one of the finest guitar players in this country. And when I was auditioning guitar players, Russell is such a kind, caring human being. And he came and he played, and he only did about one song maybe and I said okay man that's great you you can go and he was packing his gear up thinking that he was done and it was Carmela who said to me you know he thinks that you, you, you don't want him and I said no he's fantastic and I had to go running down the hallway and say Russ Russ the only reason you played one song is that's all I needed to hear and then I I thought, let's offset him uh, with Joe Rockstar, and that's Sean Kelly. And then Bob McAlpin came along uh, later, but now the three of them are just superb guitarists. Great. You got a deep bench, as they say. Yeah. 
Now, uh, Alan, back in 1972, you came from Scotland with your family to Canada at the age of 16, settling in Newmarket. Now, 16 has to be a tough time to integrate into a new culture and especially to a new high school. Did your accent tend to help or hinder you when dealing with the boys and when dealing with the girls? So it did both. It hindered and it helped. So uh, funny enough, I'm, uh, I'm writing a novel right now based on my life as fiction, but it's based on my experiences. And of course, one of the, uh, the main topics in the book is being an immigrant and coming to this country with a funny accent especially in 1972. So the guys hated it. The girls loved it. <laughs> and so it was a combination of fighting and romance. But, but the funny thing is when I latched on to a couple of guys who became really good friends, we would go to parties and girls would be in the corner and they would say, right, right, let's go up and say hello. And you speak. <laughs> now, some people ask why I still have my accent, and and what they don't realize is, number one, I was 16. I wasn't six. I was a young man. And, um, and number two, it's kind of like being Italian, and you go to school and you speak English, and you go home to mom and dad and speak Italian. For me, I was surrounded by family, and then I played so much soccer. I played soccer in Newmarket. I played soccer in Toronto. So, and everybody, they, they were Scottish and Irish uh, and English. So it was like I'd never, <laughs> I'd never left the UK un until I went to school for a few hours a day. So hence, I never lost the accent. It just stayed with me. Best of both worlds with the bonuses of lots of fighting and lots of romance. I love that. Now, Alan, let's talk about our mutual favorite hockey team, the Toronto Maple Leafs. Do you remember your introduction to ice hockey? And did you ever end up ice skating or playing hockey yourself? My introduction was I arrived on Canadian soil in August of 1972. And in September of 1972, one of the greatest hockey series of all time happened. Many people listening to this podcast weren't even born. And Canada played Russia which was supposed to be a, a shoe-in. It was supposed to be a walkover. Well, as you know, uh, the Russians put up quite a fight. <laughs> and it went down to game seven in Russia. And I remember we all got the day off school. The, the schools shut down to let Canada watch this hockey game. People were given a day off of work. So that was my first introduction to hockey. I tried putting skates on. Until one day, I was pretending to be the goalie, and a friend of mine was skating, and he had a tennis ball. It was Thank goodness it was a tennis ball. And he said, okay, are you ready? And then in about a microsecond, my nose was split open. It came so fast, and I never saw it. And it burst my nose, and I never tried it again. <laughs> That uh, is all it takes to scare scare you off for sure. Your face is your business. It's your moneymaker, Alan. You, you, oh, that, that well, I, was, I was only with 17 men, but anyway, still. Now, the Newmarket Saints were the Toronto Maple Leafs minor league affiliate playing in the American Hockey League from 1986 to 1991 at the Ray 20 complex. 
Notable Newmarket Saints alumni include Ty Domi, John Cordick, Alan Bester, current Leafs radio man Jim Ralph, and they were managed by former Leafs GM Gord Stellick. Now, Alan, of course, you were just a wee bit busy with other things in 1986 with the release of The Thin Red Line. But did you enjoy any Newmarket Saints professional ice hockey? Oh, I, I saw, I, I, I was welcome anytime and I went up and saw the lads. Uh, and of course, back then, here's my disclaimer. In recent years, I've kind of lost touch with the day-to-day, what goes on with the Toronto Maple Leafs day-to-day. But from 1972 to, you know, 1992, I was a rabid, avid Toronto Maple Leaf fan. And I had wonderful experiences. You know, I I don't mean this as a show-off or egotistical, but but by the time 86 came along, I considered people like Dougie Gilmore, Wayne Gretzky, Mario Lemieux, uh, Mark Messier, you know, especially a lot of the Oilers, believe it or not, Wendell Clark, Kevin Lowe. These guys were my, my pals. And I used to hang out with them and go see their hockey games and, I sang the national anthem for many of them. And Jimmy Ralph, I still run into Jimmy often. So I still consider them old old buddies and old pals. I consider Dougie Gilmore a good pal. And uh, from time to time, we cross paths. And uh, and I still, you know, don't get me wrong, in my heart and soul, I am an, a true Toronto Maple Leaf fan. I've just kind of lost touch a little bit. Well, you absolutely are. In addition to being a huge fan of the hockey team, you have to share your memories of playing on stage at Maple Leaf Gardens because if I'm not mistaken, you actually played the gardens as both Tokyo and as Glass Tiger. Yeah, we got to do something that it might just be stuff of legend or it might be filled with truth. But at the time, it certainly was true. We were a bar band called Tokyo and we were we were filling the bars, and people were lining up to see us. And so management came along, and then double management came along out of the United States, a gentleman by the name of Derek Sutton, who managed uh, the legendary band Sticks, and uh, he called a favor in, and got us an opening slot with uh, Boy George and Culture Club, and so. As a completely unsigned band, just our band, we opened up for Boy George. And I believe at the time it was unheard of for that to happen, an unsigned bar band to take that stage. Uh, of course, we took it later, years later as Glass Tiger. But um, on that particular show with uh, Culture Club, it was a Friday, Saturday, and I was on my seven midnights at the hospital and I had to perform opening up for Boy George and then jump in my car and drive to the hospital and do my midnight shift as an orderly uh, in the hospital. Fantastic. It's a yeah. fantastic story. It's how you work your way up. And then, of course, returning to Maple Leaf Gardens and playing as a headliner, it must have just been such a satisfying yeah. feeling for yeah. you. It was wonderful. I mean, you know, to uh, to be a kid in Maple Leaf Gardens, to go see the Who, and go see Johnny Winters, and go see Jethro Tull, and Fleetwood Mac, uh, and Rod Stewart, you know, to see those bands and then get a chance to take that stage, it was phenomenal. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview, please check out the more than 200 additional episodes available anytime. We got Chef Susser Lee, 
Body Breaks, Hal Johnson, comedian Paul Reiser, Michael Pinball Clemens, our UN ambassador Bob Ray, Maple Leafs captain Rick Vive, Dragon's Den's Wes Hall, and TVO's Steve Pakin. How they did it directly from the Toronto legends themselves. All episodes available 24 7 365 wherever you get your podcasts. Or go to torontolegends.ca. Let's talk for a moment about a name currently in the news, Keith Pally. Now, Keith mm-hmm. is a Toronto kid. In the past, he was the president of the Toronto Argos. He was the president of Canada's Olympic Broadcast Consortium for the 2010 Vancouver Olympics. He was the president of Rogers Media. He's back in the news now because he was just announced as the new CEO and president of Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment. Alan, what is your history and relationship with Keith Pally? Well, I love Keith. I think of him as a, a dear dear friend, and I'm so excited for him and wish him well. I met Keith way back when he was the CEO of the Toronto Argonauts, and uh, he and I attended a meeting for something unrelated, and we had it off at that meeting. He got back to me a little while later, and he said to me, you were buddies with John Candy, weren't you? And I said, yeah, I knew John. He said, well, we've just discovered that John's name is missing from the Grey Cup. If you remember that John and Wayne Gretzky, they owned the Argos at one time. He said, so we're going to rectify that at the All-Star Awards. Do you think you could write a song for John Candy? So through some other people, I contacted a young man at the time by the name of Stefan Mocchio. And Stefan was a virtuoso piano player, and he uh, had written some stuff, in, including uh, for uh, Celine Dion. So it just shows you how how the the world turns uh, on a dime. We wrote the song for John Candy. When then Keith calls me, we become friends, and Keith calls me and says, "I can't tell anybody; it's a secret, but I'm going to be the head of the Olympic Consortium for CTV." And I immediately said, wow, let me write the anthem. And he goes, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a chance. I said, yeah, don't call David Foster just yet. So uh, cut to the chase. Stefan had this uh, really cool, bombastic kind of a, uh, an Olympic theme. You know? And I got him to play it for me and give it to me. And I turned it into, which I think now is the iconic Olympic song, I believe. And uh, the rest is history. We we launched it as the Olympic theme, the Olympic anthem, the Olympic song. And it was a monstrous hit for young Nikki Yanofsky and for, for, for CTV. And uh, then Keith went on to become the CEO of Rogers, went over to the uh, European golf, and now he's back as the uh, CEO of Maple Leaf Sports. So I love Keith, and if he ever listens to this, I, I wish him well. I'll find him. Absolutely. And he hopefully he's going to take us to the promised land. As you know, Alan, we've been waiting since 67. Oh, my goodness. Now, some of you may not know the name Jim Valance, but if you know Brian Adams, you will know Jim Valance. Alan, who is Jim Valance, and what was your history with him? Okay, so Jim... We started out one of the greatest songwriters this country has ever produced. And even when I'm in front of an audience, I'll say, the, you know, this was written along with Jim Valance. 
you think you don't know Jim Valens, but you do. And of course, you know what I mean by that. Jim Valens was the songwriting partner and is the songwriting partner of Brian Adams. And all of those classic Brian Adams hits are co-writes with Jim. And they've written for Tina Turner and Rod Stewart and Aerosmith. And so Jim, back in 1985, wanted to dip his toe in the water on the production side of things. He heard that Capitol Records had this new up-and-coming band that they were going to launch called Glass Tiger. Actually, Tokyo still at the time. And so Jim threw his name in the hat. And we got to meet him. And we really took to his expertise and his personality. We flew to Vancouver. And on the very first day ever, ever, ever working with this gentleman, we wrote, don't forget me when I'm gone. And someday on the same same session. And that speaks for itself. Talk about a power session. Many think that Brian Adams singing on Glass Tiger's mega hit, Don't Forget Me When I'm Gone, was some carefully pre-planned collaboration, but the reality couldn't be further from that. Alan, I apologize. This is literally the billionth time you've been asked, but how did Brian Adams end up singing on Don't Forget Me When I'm Gone? Yeah, you know, people love to contrive. Uh, you know, we'll get to it if you want, but Rod Stewart, working with Rod was the same. Um, Brian used to call the studio to check in with Jim because Jim was producing this new band, Glass Tiger. And one day Jim said to me, hey, Brian's on the phone, say hello. And I was a, you know, a little in awe of it and like, hey, Brian, my name's Alan. You know, hey, Alan, how you doing? And we just chatted and uh, Brian said he was coming in for the Juno Awards, which we weren't even invited to because we weren't known at that time. And he said he would pop by the studio. And he did. And we just sat around shooting the shit, you know, having a laugh. And then we had a few pops, a couple of Heinekens or two. And we were having a great time. And Jim said, why don't you two go to microphone? And we, we looked at each other and we went, okay. And we went on the microphone and we farted around with two songs, actually. Uh, one was Don't Forget Me When I'm Gone. And the other one was I will, I will Be There. And we did it for fun. And we put it out for fun. I mean, don't forget me when I'm gone. Without a doubt, is a, like, a bona fide pop hit. There's no doubt about it. Having Brian on it was just a ton of fun. And we enjoyed every second of it. And he was so gracious to, to say, yeah, leave it. And, uh, and Rod Stewart was the same. Rod and I had become friends and I had never, ever played that card until there was a male 
singer who and who was working with us in in LA, who was working on my turn, came into this into the restaurant, and Rod and I were having dinner, and he turned around and said to Rod, "Have you heard the song this guy's got about Scotland? It's called My Turn." And Rod politely said, "No, I've never heard it." And uh, when the guy left, Rod turned to me and said, "Why the hell did you not ask me to sing on it?" And I said, "Well, I didn't want to do that." And he goes, "Well, I want to sing on it." That was it. So it was nothing contrived about any of it. It's great experiences. Sometimes you just got to ask. Yeah, or 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 wait for them. You ask. It's <laughs> even better. Now, you are always asked these questions. It's very appreciated that you still take the time to share. But I have to give you a challenge, Alan. So I'm, I'm hoping this one you haven't had before. In the video for Don't Forget Me When I'm Gone, the role of Brian Adams, so to speak, is played by a local kid from Newmarket. By now, he would be fully grown, functioning adult. Have you ever gotten an update on the Newmarket kid singing Brian Adams' part in the Don't Forget Me When I'm Gone video? Nothing directly. I vaguely remember, maybe more than once, running into someone, don't ask me who that someone would be, and they may have mentioned, hey, I was doing something and the, the, a guy said, you know, I'm the kid in the, in the Glass Tiger video. But I personally haven't seen him since then. And if he's listening to this, or anyone that knows him is listening to this, I'd like to shake his hand. I'd like to meet this uh, younger, much younger than I am, but uh, this young man who's probably now in his 40s. <laughs> yeah. Well, but be careful what you ask for, Alan, because you may have seen the news not that long ago where the baby from the Nirvana album cover. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He won't build the piece of the action. The news is we didn't strip him naked and throw him in a swimming pool. Absolutely. Now, you have met and become friends with so many interesting people over your career, including Sir Rod Stewart, but possibly the highlight of your life, Alan, was meeting Paul McCartney. Please share that story. Uh, I've been a Beatles fan my entire life. I, I grew up on them. I was influenced by them. My songwriting is influenced by them. And uh, there's a, a gentleman who sadly has passed away. His name was Dean Cameron. And Dean... Uh, as a young man, started in the back room on the forklift trucks and pressing the albums and the cassettes. And he went on to become the president 
of Capitol Records and EMI. And Dean signed us uh, as a young band and went on went on to become the president. And when he did become the president, Glass Tiger was a big band at the time, but I said to him, you're going to meet Paul McCartney. And he said, well, probably. I said, would you do me a favor? I, I would normally ask this, but if you get in his company, would you get me an autograph? I, I'm embarrassed to ask, but I have to ask. And he said, okay. And so Paul came to play the Sky Dome at the time. He sold the Sky Dome out for two nights. And I had an end on tickets. <laughs> My tickets ended up better than Capitol Records. <laughs> I was second row. They were row 20. I'll, I love to tell them that. Anyway, I got this call to go down in the afternoon to the Sky Dome. And so I went down and it was an invite to a press conference that Paul was giving that Dean had arranged for me. He was there also with the Capitol Records. So I went down. Glass Tiger was a popular band at the time, so they kept me in another room. They got everybody seated, and then they brought me in, and then the press conference started. They didn't want, they didn't want any interruptions for Paul, and I agree. So the press conference was fabulous. I was only about 15 feet away from him, and I thought that was amazing. And then... The lights came up and Paul left the room and some of the media jumped on me saying, hey, Alan, glass tiger, oh, blah, blah, blah. How, what do you think about the press conference? When this lady came out with a clipboard in a very English accent and said, you know, Capitol Records, uh, uh, a party of six and then Alan Frew. And I said, I'm, I'm an Alan Frew. And she goes, well, come along then. And I'm like, where? She goes, well, you're going to meet him. And I'm like, are you kidding? And Dean had arranged this. And so they walk me down this long hallway and I'm talking to myself inside my head saying, Paul, thank you for my life. Paul, thank you. You're the, you know, what am I, you know, I going to say to this man? And as I enter the room, he's the first one right there, but as he's back to me. And one of the record reps looks over his shoulder and sees me and goes, oh, Paul, here's, here's Alan. I was telling you all about Alan. Alan. Paul McCartney, and Paul puts his hand out, shakes my hand, and goes, don't forget me when I'm gone. <laughs> and I am speechless. And I'm just nodding. And so he pries his hand away, and then he takes over the room and splits us into two groups, Capitol Records and Friends of the Earth. And uh, when it came time to be with Capitol Records, they were presenting him with an award. When he looked at me, I was just standing there, and he said, Alan, come on, get in beside me. I went, oh, okay. And so I get in beside him, get a picture taken, and as he's walking away from me, that's when I realized, if you do not speak to this gentleman, you'll regret this for the rest of your life. And so I said, Paul? And he answered, yeah. And I thought, wow, you say his name, and he knows it. He answers, yes. And, and so he said, yeah. And I said, look, I have a poster here of you. I wonder if you'd be kind enough to sign it. And it dawns on me that this is the first time he'd heard my voice. He heard my accent. So he goes, ah, you're Scottish. And I said, yeah. He goes, Glasgow or Edinburgh? I said, Glasgow. Rangers or Celtic? I said, Rangers. And so we chatted for a few minutes and it was delightful. And then Linda came in 
and said, we've got to go, sweetheart. And she took him away and he gave me another handshake and pat on the shoulder and took off. And that was it. What a fabulous story. And the fact that it's so detailed and vibrant in your mind today shows you the impact it had. And, and, and he was delightful. I mean, I've been very, very fortunate. Most of the superstars that I've ever met, within reason, have all been really decent, delightful people. Well, we've all heard the saying, don't meet your heroes. But in this case, it worked out very well. Right. Alan, something you're known for is resiliency. In addition to coming all the way back from your devastating strokes suffered in 2015, many fans may not realize that back in the day, you actually suffered a fall that caused a broken neck 10 days before going out on a national tour with Glass Tiger and your pal, Corey Hart. Please share how you bounced back from that incident. Well, that was just brutal. I mean, in many ways, it was even worse than my stroke. I'd had some episodes where I, I since my stroke, where I, I have this, um, they call it a kind of vasovagal response. It's the big artery that runs up the center of your body. And, um, you know, kids, that, young boys that play that stupid game of holding their breath and squeezing and they pass out kind of thing. And so I've had a couple of incidents and in one particular case, I passed out and I fell and fractured my neck in two places, broke my neck. And it was 10 days before going on a national tour with Corey. And uh, it was horrible. And I was in critical care. And uh, they did an operation fusing my neck. And Corey, Corey heard all about it and called me and said, Dude, what happened? And I said, I broke my neck. And he goes, man, what are you going to do? And I said, I'll be there. I said, I'll be there. Don't worry. And he goes, you you can't. I said, I'll be there. The first show was in Newfoundland. And uh, I'll never forget being in the hospital bed when the surgeon came in. And he was a gentleman from Iran. And he walked in. He said, I hear you go on tour. And I said, yes. And he goes, you're a fucking crazy man. And he walked out. And he signed, he signed off this forum that basically said, if this dude dies on tour, uh, I am not responsible. And, uh, and so I started in Newfoundland. I took my assistant with me who looked after everything except me having to, you know, get on, actually get on the stage. And I did do coast to coast. Uh, we did about 12 shows from St. John's, Newfoundland to Victoria, B.C., that's the word, resiliency. It's, it's one thing to have Corey Hart advise you not to do it, but when your surgeon advises you not to do it, after putting a titanium plate in your neck, Alan, you are uh, you're a brave man. Yeah, I am Scottish. <laughs> and you're Scottish. So again, Alan Frew is playing a live 80s and 90s Rewind show at the Opera House on Saturday, February 17th. There is a link with all ticket info in this episode's show notes. Alan, should attendees come dressed in their best 80s and 90s gear? Absolutely. I mean, guys, this is going to be a blast. It's just going to be one of the parties of all parties, isn't it? And the band is only as good and the atmosphere is only as good as you are. You know, without you guys, uh, there is no party, obviously. So why not take it to the next step and come out in your finest 80s, 90s attire, and let's all just have a blast together. 
Uh, so it's February 17th, as you mentioned, at the Opera House in Toronto. You can't beat that. A party with Alan Frew. It's going to be fantastic. I want to thank you again for your time. I can't tell you what a great thrill it is to catch up with you. You're always so giving with all your stories and your memories. And of course, I know this show is going to be great too. So continued success to you. Thank you, Andrew. It's been my pleasure. And to the listeners, on behalf of Alan Frew, I am Andrew Applebaum saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. I'm Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app.